0: we're going to wrap up the series that we've been in called I think we should see other people and wanted to say first thanks for those of you who are a part of whether you're serving on Sundays or scattered yesterday Uh, I think the the numbers were like 40 or actually it was 50 or some so people so that scattered with us yesterday so just want to echo what Justin and Hannah said thank you and I, I just love that at this point there's a higher percentage of people returning to serving whether it's on Sunday or at the scattering events than there is even just attending so Way to go, and it's really fun to be the church with all you guys. So there's this guy that I, I get to help coach these last couple years. I've helped him, and I was trying to think of an analogy, because to say I help him is like saying like Bill Cartwright helped Michael Jordan win championships or something. But even that's imperfect, because Bill Cartwright did contribute something. I just sit on the bucket and put the ball on the tee, because this guy that I've helped coach with these last couple years, he's definitely the most accomplished baseball guy I've ever known personally. He was a D1 middle infielder, which is no small task. Uh, he was a college baseball coach and then for a time did some some scouting for a couple different major league teams. And my youngest has been able to play for this guy since he was eight years old, except for one year. And just a, he's just a blast to coach with. He knows the game very well. He's an extraordinary communicator. But there's this story that he's told each of the last two years that I've been around to the whole team, and he tends to tell it early in the year for a pretty specific reason, because it becomes a mantra for the rest of the team for the rest of the year. And the stories of a time when he was coaching this college program and when he was hired by this program, it it was the the, that team was the doormat of the entire conference. And of course, in the college world, when you get hired to be a new coach, the thinking is that in four years time you can turn the program because at least by that point your recruits are seniors. Uh, And they were in a tournament, I think it was only two years into his tenure. It was a tournament, as I recall, that w- was in Spokane. It featured some of the best teams in the country from his, this, the level of, of college that they were at. It wasn't a D1 program. I forget what, what division level it was. But they were at this massive tournament in Spokane with some of the best teams, and this team that he was coaching just now for the second year, they, they just played out of their minds the whole tournament, and they made it to the chipper. Now, they were in the championship game against what I think was the best team in the country at their level, it was late in the game, something like the eighth inning tie ball game. Their leadoff guy got on base. They had a guy on second then with no outs. My friend's team did. One of his better hitters up to bat. And that guy got up and he roped one down the third baseline. And if you're not familiar with baseball baseball, culture or rules like tennis in baseball if the ball hits the foul line especially behind first base or behind third base it's fair if any parts of it part of it hits the foul line it's fair and my friend said he swore from the dugout he watched chalk fly in the air this was back before they used paint they actually used chalk and he said he watched it fly in the air and so of course in his mind he's already calculated a win the runner scores from second easy this is going to be a blast and no sooner is he thinking all those things than the umpire throws his arms in the air and yells foul ball And my friend lost his mind, as he describes it. He ran out into the field, was arguing with that umpire. He wouldn't hear or in any way change his call. He ran to the other umpire, was trying to get him to confer, and maybe he would override him, maybe he had a better look. He wouldn't say anything. He went back to the original umpire. And at this point, he's just so out of his mind. I don't need to know to what degree he calculated this or it just happened, but he wasn't going anywhere until he was tossed. It's kind of this classic baseball culture. And so the umpire kicked him out. But before he left the field, and this is the part that he tells the team, before he left the field, he made his way back to home plate and he proceeded to kick the chalk line and eliminated the, the foul line from home plate all the way to the outfield grass. So, like, I don't know how long this took him, but he just, the whole way, just Billy Martin style, eliminated the chalk line. Finally had to leave the field, of course. As I recall, his team lost. Afterwards, he came out of the dugout. His dad was there, who was also is a very accomplished college baseball coach. And he was expecting to be greeted by this boy that was sure funny. You showed that umpire kind of thing. And as he got close to his dad, his dad just looked at him. And of course, we can read our parents. He could tell from a little ways away that his dad wasn't as amused by his antics as he was. And his dad looked at him and he said, "You just made a complete fool of yourself." Though fool is not the exact word that was used in that situation. And then he said this line, and this is why he tells, uh, as best I can tell, this is why he tells every team he coaches this story. He said, in life, and I got the sense that this was a line that my friend had heard his whole life growing up, but suddenly in this moment it made more sense than it ever had before. He said, in life, you either react or you choose to respond. And you just reacted and in doing made a fool of yourself. It's a challenging story because I don't know about you, I think I'm more of a reactor than I am a responder more often than not. But I, I, I tell that story to say, here, here's what I'm hoping this series has done. is I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty proud of where we're at culturally right now. Like When I look at some of the, the, the ways different businesses have adapted, I'm proud of our schools and our teachers and the way that... Like, they found a way between everything and nothing. I'm, I'm proud of d- different sectors. I'm proud of you all and the way they're serving. And it's weird, like, sometimes you should just stand in the back of the room because technically it's full right now, but it's empty. So, like, even you've adapted these two seats thing. It's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud. I, I think that there was this season where we were reacting. And I, I, why wouldn't we? We've never experienced it. I was just thinking in that video. Imagine if you'd, you would have shown that video a year ago. People would have been like, what are you talking about? What is quarantine? And so my my hope in this series is that what we've done is create a little bit of space for you to just make some calculations, and, and, and it is with regard to how you're going to respond socially in this season, because it seems to me that there's been lots of areas where we've been intentional about creating space to respond, not react, and my hope was in this series, because as I've listened to you and walked with many of you and had conversations and tried to pay attention to what I felt like God was working on in me that there was this we needed some space to get calculated and with respect to how are we going to respond socially and that doesn't mean to me that I'm convinced that there's one there's a one-size-fits-all answer for all of us I, I can genuinely respect those of you who are of the more cautious side whether that's because of your own medical condition or just because frankly that's just where you're at I, I can totally respect that and, and, and simultaneously, the person who's of the, the more like, meh, I'm, I'm more accepting. I, I think there's room for all of that, but to still, my hope is in this series, We've, it's created conversation is to go, probably this isn't going away anytime soon. So what does it mean to be human? And what does it mean that we're a social creature? And what does it mean to have connections? And what does it mean to reciprocate in relationship? And, and what does it mean to make sure that we're connecting? And so this morning, what I want to do is I just have one more question and listen, if you're not a Christ follower, we're we so thrilled that you're here. It's, we've worked hard over the years to try to create a safe place for people like you who don't even like church. We try to, try, try, to, try to create a safe place for those of you who are not sure what you think about Jesus. You used to follow him or you might follow him or, or you may never follow him but you're married to someone who does or whatever. But this morning is one of those mornings where honestly I, I think the opportunity for you is to kind of just sit back and go like, okay, so th- that's what that would look like. There's, there's lots of different versions of what it means to follow Jesus and lots of different expressions. And I made a decision 12 years ago that I wasn't going to be among those deconstructing the way other people's are, people are doing it. I'm just going to go do it the way that I believe. And that's the great thing about planning a church and being a part of a community together is vote with your feet. But what I want to do this morning is, for those of you who are Christ followers, I think there's a culture uh, that narrates predicated upon, that it's built upon... And I guess there's some questions that I want to ask, and hopefully they're not heavy-handed, but just in the direction of making sure that we're responding, not reacting, as we think about what it means to follow God and what it means to follow God together. And the question, I've struggled with wording it all week, I'm ending it with articles and breaking all these different rules that you're not supposed to do, but the question is something like this, what's the value of belonging to a people? And and where my heart's and my head's coming from here is we've spent a lot of time on what do you need and your need to need and all those things that I think are very important and your need for connection, you're built for connection. I think there's another aspect of this and it's really difficult in a season of COVID and it's really difficult as individualistic Americans, but to go, what's the value of having a people that you belong to? Like, what's the value of of having a people that, like, the the value of them is higher than the value you give yourself, or at least equal? I I don't know, I suppose we could have to nuance that in a little bit in a conversation. Like, what's the value of having a people that you go, this isn't really about me? I I think some of the best coaches do this. You know, some coaches are out there coaching baseball because they love it more than everybody else, but some of them are out there because there's lots of things they they also love to do. But frankly, they they value kids and the sport and and, and teaching them the sport. So what's the value of having a community that you belong to? And and I want to be a little self-aware that that's an ironic question for me to ask because I'm the most self-absorbed person I know, and I've been aware of that for years and just struggle to fix it. I mean that genuinely. Like, I'm a terrible listener. I tell stories better than I listen to stories. I have all these issues. And I think when I first started following Jesus... Uh, it was very much about me and what I get, and my holiness, and my healing, and my health, and my future, and my, you know, my purpose and my vision, and all those things. But there was this season, and I, I didn't master it. But there was a season in the mid 2000s. I, I was, I was super into the Jewish context of Jesus' faith and just what it meant that the Bible was written by Jewish people predominantly and for Jewish people in many cases. And it shows how much the world has changed because now you'd go onto YouTube or you'd you know, take some class on Udemy, but I struggled to find a resource to study this. And I finally found this, in hindsight, this, this dude who had a church, who had studied a lot in Israel, who had a little school in Arkansas, and I would, I would send him a check in the mail. This, this, means just, this is like 2005. I'd send him a check in the mail and he'd send me back a box full of VHS tapes with like a sealed envelope, which was the correspondence test, and this little workbook you would fill out. I mean, isn't that crazy? Like, that was only 15 years ago. Now you're like, what? VHS? What? My kids are going like, what's a VHS tape? And, and one of the studies in there, and I think it was one of the things that I maybe took as much as anything from this study, which was, was, has to do with the way that the Jewish people don't think in terms of Abraham, but they think in terms of the people of Abraham. They don't think, think in terms of individual. They think in terms of community. And in Genesis 12, I remember I almost can get the guy's name, but I can't quite. I can picture his face. He had this iconic Santa Claus beard. But he took us to Genesis 12 and it goes this way. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Now, you, you may be familiar with this. This is like one of the moments in the biblical narrative. This is the, this is the Abraham, this is the George Washington of Judeo-Christian faith. But watch verse 2. I will make of you. I love the way the NRSV does that. I will make of you a great nation. Sure, I'll bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And there's this, these questions that I think can flow of like, is this, is this story about Abram? Or is it about the, the people that will come from Abram? I mean, is this story about Abram's privilege? Or is this story about Abram's responsibility? And the way I formed the question for myself then, and again, I... I don't think in any way that I've mastered this. I can say it's, it's why we planted a church, not just a group of us in our living room started just doing church together, and I don't have the need to, to in any way deconstruct that or, or, or say that that's not valid. It just, for me, this is one of the moments why our lives, Teresa and I's lives, and many of us friends who were part of this, this is why they went the direction they were. There's, there's this question to, to me of, what, what, if, what if God's in pursuit of a people, not a person? And what if I think AA has this really, really well when AA says, when you don't need us, we need you. That there's this central value that yes, God values the individual and I love the way Dallas Willard says that like, what makes him unique on the human scene is nobody gives more dignity to the individual human person. And this story, in its original context, was about a guy who in some sense was a means to an end and the end was a people, What's, what's the value of, of belonging to a people? And I get that this is kind of like me talking about giving because the degree to which you would apply this, this thing that we do called narrate, I would be on the receiving end, and I go like, man, if my motives kind of make you, if they kind of gross you out this morning, that's great. Then just go apply it somewhere else. But what's the value of having a people that, that we belong to? Now, there's this book that my, my friend Nathan recommended to me a, a few months ago. We bought a few of them. They're out there on that scattering table. It's called Silence. And, and it's the type of book that if you read the first 10 pages, you'll, get, you'll finish it. I almost guarantee it. But it, it's like, it makes the shack look like strawberry shortcake. And you're like, who's strawberry? I mean, it, 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 like, if you've ever read the book The Shack, which is really heavy, like, this book is way heavier. It's, it, it's a historical fiction book. It's written by a Japanese man in the 70s, it's translated into English, of course. And what it's trying to recount, and as best the book says, it does so pretty accurately, is this era of Japanese history. In the early 1500s, the predominantly Portuguese priests, Catholic priests, were very successful in bringing Christ to the country that we would now know as Japan, to that land, to those people, to that culture. In fact, by some estimates, there were as many as 100,000 Christians in Japan at its high point. But then there was a warlord who unified things, and in the late 15, early 1600s, one of the, the unified nation of Japan, one of the decisions they made was to eliminate Christianity from the island. And of course, uh, that was made simple by the fact that they had no shame in just killing all the priests. And, and one of the priests was kind of their Abram, and is it Martin Scor- Scorsese or however you say his name? He has a book or a, a movie out on it. I'm never watching the movie. I was going to show you a clip from the movie, and I'm like, nope, not watching the movie. It's because I would imagine that it is ho- horribly graphic, and I don't have a problem with that. I'm just I'm like, life is hard enough. I want to watch happy stuff. But the book, so, so, so the movie seems to, best I can tell, and what I've heard is it leans more towards kind of the Abraham of, of the, this mission movement. Word gets back to, these mission, to, to Portugal and these Portuguese Catholic churches and leaders uh, that he's apostatized. And not only that he's apostatized, but that he's now like, being persuasive within this movement of eliminating Christianity from, from the island. And there's these couple young priests, uh, one of them becomes the main character, his name's Rodriguez, who, who, who they decide they're going back to the island. And in the book, at least, and if you decide to read it, I'd love to go for a walk with you after you read it, because there's so many details that I, I still haven't worked out and reconciled. But as best I understood it, part of their motive for going back was to find that guy. But more to that, their motive to go back was that they were heartbroken, that these peasant Christians who were treated as less than human, uh, that suddenly they lack they lack a priest, they lack leadership, they lack the sacraments, they, 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 they lack the opportunity to grow in the way that they'd been conditioned to grow. And so they enter the island, more or less they smuggle themselves onto the island, knowing that eventually they're going to get caught and that won't be pretty. And sure enough, they eventually are caught. And from there, the way the game is played is, is we're going to torture these peasants until you apostatize and the Japanese even then had had mastered the art of torture. They, they would take these peasants and they would like roll them in rice blankets and then load them on a boat and then they would say to the priests, like, you apostatizer, we're going to go drop them into the ocean. And they'd drop them into the ocean. I mean, they'd behead people. And in one case, they, they hung these people more or less from crosses in the ocean, like on the on the beach. And so during high tide, the people are like basically being waterboarded by the ocean. They're almost drowning. And then during low tide, of course... They're rescued from that moment, or even as the tide goes out. And so they they hang there for days before they die. Uh, The the most horrific thing is they develop the pit, and they they figure out that we can hang people upside down, and they'll make the most horrifying sounds, and we'll just put the priest in jail next to them. But then, of course, if you hang somebody upside down, after half an hour, an hour, they're going to pass out. But they figured out they won't pass out if we put holes in their head to relieve the pressure. So they'd put these holes behind their ears or sometimes in their temple. And so people would, would hang there for days, kind of drowning in their own blood. And these priests would just have to listen. And again, every once in a while, they'd show up. And in, in fact, uh, to be fair to, to the theology of it, they'd put a p- picture of uh, Mary, Jesus' mom, on the ground. And they'd say, all you got to do is stand on that picture and, and we'll stop. And there's this one sense, like for me, I think the Western individual Christian sense, there's this sense of like, cross your fingers behind your back and step on the picture, like God's worldview is bigger than that. God, God, God can understand that. But as best I can tell, that's not really the way they're seeing it. Because the, the, the issue for the priests is this issue of, do I serve them best by saving their life? But but also, like, their hero goes down. Or do I serve the, the whole better by standing my ground and staying true to faith, and yet they die? It's this, it's, it, again, it's a really, really challenging read. I highly recommend it, but it, bring, it brought to the surface for me this very issue. To what degree is faith about having a people that you belong to, that you belong for, I've got to listen to some of you. Uh, it seems like especially teachers and people in the medical field. I think a lot of small business owners. One of the beautiful things about this season is your vocational why. And we're going to explore this in December a little bit. But it seems like the vocational why is being refined. Like if it was just about something to pay the mortgage, then it's like, this isn't worth it. The risk isn't worth it. I remember even early in COVID, Teresa and I were having conversations about... we. we I, I, We'd never considered that this was the implications of her being a nurse. I think that's what the book does, is it draws to the surface. To what degree is your faith a privilege, and to what degree is it a responsibility? And when do we cross that line between, God, I love you, I love you, I love you, I want to mold you and shape you, God is saying to us, and God is going, okay, but now I've got a job for you. This is the creation theology stuff. This is like, I've got a role for you to play. And, and, and Jesus, I think, he also takes up this issue. This is one of the major narratives of, of the Gospels. In and, and, and Matthew 20, uh, there, there's a story that Matthew tells. Our current, my, my opinion is that our editorial way of doing the Bible with section breakups kind of ruins the, negative, or the, the narrative flow. But I'm going to try to read it through and just see if you catch the irony of what's going on here. While Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and said to them on the way, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom." But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, yeah, we're able. There's this thing called the Holy Grail. We watch movies about it. Indiana Jones went looking for it. King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table went looking for it. Because legend had it that this cup was something that Joseph Arimathea, uh, he used to capture some of the blood dripping from Jesus while he hung from the cross. And further legend said that that cup, which became this great relic of of the church, that it found its way to England, which is where we get Indiana Jones. But this isn't really a story about a cup, is it? See, what we see here is the same issue, like it's the cyclical nature of the human experience, I think. These guys have in mind what it means to follow Jesus. They've got a clear picture despite the fact that Jesus is going, no, 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 it's not actually about that. What this is going to look like is, I'm going to die this heinous death for you. And they think he's using just like figurative language because they've so got figured out what it means to follow Jesus. The story continues. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, which of course is a symbol of suffering, But to sit at my right hand and my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard it, they they were angry with the two brothers, but Jesus called to him him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, they think that following Jesus is about power and privilege and position. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Being a follower of me So the degree that you become more and more advanced in it is about giving your life away for others. So for me, this would be one of those classic issues. I I think there's lots of room as a Christ follower to, to, to come to different conclusions on what does it mean in this season to give your life away as a ransom for others. How do you give expression to that? How, what, how do you give expression to, to what it means to, to live your life in community? How do you live? How do you give expression to what it means to have a people that you live for? I think there's lots of rooms to interpret that differently, but to me, it strikes me in this in this experience that we've had that I don't I'm literally not blaming anybody, but it's an experiment that experience that has fundamentally reinforced the idea that life is about you the individual, and the gospel story constantly begs to differ and says, no, 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 no. Disciples are people who, who see themselves as a ransom for others. You know, back office, we've been talking about this as a staff, and I, I brought this idea to them, uh, it's probably been a month or so ago, of like, guys, we're, we're in a church plant right now. Like, put a bow on who we became, celebrate it, be grateful. That was a great 11-year run. This is a church plant. What's a church plant? Well, it has a core group of people with a startup bit of resource and the hope that we can actually reach people who will join us in this vision for what it means to live this way, and eventually that there will be more of a critical mass so you know, the stones don't, usher, don't have to usher every Sunday. And I don't. I don't. I hope I don't mean this manipulatively, but I just, for me, it's exciting. Like I, I think every small business downtown. I've talked to some of my friends who own some of the breweries and stuff. Like, dude, it's business startup. Never mind that you've got glasses that say you celebrated your fifteenth anniversary. You're a startup again, which is kind of exciting. But as Christ followers, I think for me it's been this reminder of this this thing started because some people caught a common vision for what does it mean to live your life for others? What does it mean to to give your life away on behalf of others? And you could argue that vacuuming at 6 in the morning or ushering at the the 9 o'clock or or making coffee or tearing down, you could argue that's a trivial expression of that. That's okay, we don't have to agree. But at its core, splitting firewood, all that, it's been like, I I, want to give expression to my faith by by seeing myself as belonging to a people. And so, t- to me, that, the, the last question, and, and as we think about what, what does it mean to, to respond, not react, I, I think this has the potential to affect everything, the gathering and the scattering, the organized scattering and the organic. I think this has the potential to have you walk in the door of your school or your job or, or your neighborhood with a completely different disposition tomorrow. Again, not, not that we're going to agree on the nuances of application there, but that suddenly there's this realization of, wait a minute. What does it mean to have a clear sense of a people that you live your life in be, on behalf of? And what does it mean to, to be a part of a church who, who defines what it means to follow Jesus? Not by what I get, but, but what, I, what I give just felt to me like a question worth asking before we move into winter and a whole new expression of however this thing's gonna go. So i like to pray and, and again, open it up. Really, the question piece is just modeling something that uh, we've not done this before. Where It's like, okay, so as we think about the series, what, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? And, and, and we'll have a, a brief conversation there. God, thanks for the people in this room and those watching from home. Uh, even listening this week via podcast and just the different ways that, that you give this, this gathering uh, influence. And God, my, my prayer would be that, that you would use this to create space uh, where we intentionally think not just about what does it mean to respond and, and have connection, but, but what does it mean to be a, a person whose life is about others in this pandemic? love you, God. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.